Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's amazing to be doing this podcast in real life for the first time after three and a half years of doing this podcast together. There's one person in this audience who is particularly responsible. Alexander Drexel, I'm looking at you. I think since week two of this podcast, he was like, do a live show, do a live show. And we said no. And then somehow we said yes. I think that was Mick Terehorst who got us here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just a normal episode. Just a normal episode. Nothing different, just a few people looking at our faces move. If we stay very, very still, hopefully they won't attack. No, no, we know <laughs> it's a very nice crowd out there tonight because I know a lot of people in this audience have been listening to this podcast and supporting this podcast for a really, really long time. So we're super, super happy to see all of you here tonight. Yeah, thank you all. We are live from the Dutch Podcast Festival in Amsterdam's Tollhouse Town. Who would have thought this would ever happen? Um, yeah, it's we've been resisting calls to do this for a while. And one of the ways we agreed to do it um, after being cajoled into it was by on the condition that we'd have a guest that we know personally um, to take some of the nervous edge off. So guess who we've ended up with? Is it your husband by any chance? It is my husband. Ah. <laughs> yes, so very close to home. And the fact that Thomas is A, your husband and therefore couldn't say no to this and B happens to conveniently be located in Amsterdam that had nothing at all to do with it well the second thing does have something to do with it uh we wanted to make sense of this live episode by making it really about this place um about Amsterdam and my husband Thomas Lammers is based in this place and has recently been working on a project about the end of Amsterdam sounds cheery good yeah. topic for a podcast yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry to break it to you, but Amsterdam will be over. It will be cancelled at some point. Um, he guesses in the next 250 years. So we're going to be bringing Thomas up later on in the show to talk on behalf of his collective, Collective Walden, about a project they've just completed actually right in this neighbourhood about the final 250 years of Amsterdam. What to do in those final 250 years. It's going to be hopefully an intriguing and potentially terrifying conversation, but that's coming up later. First, it's time for... So for those of you joining us at home, we are recording this on Friday evening here in Amsterdam, which means the big European news of the week, the German elections, that hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, the elections are still far, far ahead of us in the distant future, a.k.a. the weekend. So by the time that you hear this, it will definitely be a good week for someone or other who is going to replace Angela Merkel. German Chancellor, constant presence in our lives for the last 16 years. It's kind of difficult to believe that this time is really coming to an end. Uh, but who is replacing her? That is still very much up in the air as of Friday. So that is something that we're going to come back to in next week's episode. In the meantime, Dominic, who has had a good week? Yeah, well, we may not be talking about the German election this week, but that's not going to stop me talking about the other big news from Germany this week. Uh, I'm giving good week to a kindergarten in the town of Halver okay. that has been through yeah, a bit of a rough time of late. They had a burglary in April this year, uh, but this week they had a lucky break and found the person who did it. That is wonderful news, obviously just as important as the German election. Like, who, what had the thief taken? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. The thief took a variety of things. They took a laptop, some picture books, uh, cups, glasses, some fish sticks. 
Uh, okay. Pasta and a smart speaker for playing children's stories. I, I'm still stuck on the fish sticks, as in like oven cooked frozen fish fingers. Yeah, I can only assume so. Uh, I have and so you, many questions. You may, under, you may be wondering why we're talking about a small scale burglary in this segment. Um, and to be honest, I'm also asking myself that question right now uh, in front of an audience. But um, it's partly to do with the fish sticks and it's partly to do with the way that they managed to solve this crime, which we found quite intriguing. Did they use sniffer dogs to sniff out the fish sticks? <laughs> that would have been really clever, but no. Uh, almost as, impress imp as impressively, they asked the manufacturer of the smart speaker, the one that plays children's stories, to track that speaker. And when the burglar went to download some new stories about a month later, he'd apparently got bored of the old ones. Um, the device sent its location to the manufacturer and the police was able to locate the guy um, who is a 44-year-old suspect. And I'm genuinely quite impressed that the police like, paid this much attention to a small-scale burglary like this hmm. and that they managed to find and return the bounty. Well, I don't know if that included the fish sticks because those would probably have been in quite a bad state by this point but uh it's nice that they got the speaker back it's true uh it's nice or is it terrifying that they are able to track us through smart speakers of children's stories funny you mentioned that because i think i see a bit of a theme shaping up for good week bad week but more on that later intriguing um obviously it's a pretty bad week for the suspect himself uh who's facing criminal charges and yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm reveling in his downfall. Uh, I have to say I feel a bit mixed about the fact that he was busted after trying to download children's stories, presumably for his child. But nonetheless, it's been a good week for the kindergarten in Halver in Germany. Um, yeah, I also actually wanted to mention that I don't know if any of you have seen, but there's been this wild TikTok craze um, where they've been some TikTokers have been encouraging each other to steal things from their high schools, mainly in America. Oh, yeah. It's called hashtag devious licks. Um, and I wondered whether this guy was just like part of that and <laughs> getting it a bit wrong. Maybe. Personally, I think it's a bit sad that the kids these days need like a TikTok meme to encourage them to school to steal school property. We used to do that for free. I did not. Anyway. Who's had a bad week, Katie? Well, the obvious choice was Apple uh, because of this rather drastic plan to force phone makers to use USB-C phone chargers. Uh, but at the time of recording, we are still kind of digesting that news a little bit. So it might have to be something that we come back to. Uh, also, weirdly, if memory serves me correctly, you actually did a deep dive into European phone chargers on this podcast like about two years ago. Yeah, I can't remember that at all, but I I trust you. Um, yeah, we, We've been making this podcast for just so long that there is truly uh, no subject that we haven't covered. It's true. I, I saw a really nice tweet about this topic yesterday from uh, Sam Morgan on Twitter, who was saying that it's, it's actually a plan from the European Commission to uh, make the whole of Europe use one single charger and fight over it. Yes. I love that. And this continent is absolutely capable of making that work. Um, no, but actually, I've picked out a different piece of mobile phone news for this week's bad week. It has been a bad week for Lithuanians who own Chinese-made mobile phones. Very specific. Bit specific, yes, but hear me out. Uh, it's been a rather startling warning from Lithuania's cybersecurity agency. And they've basically said, citizens of Lithuania, if you have a Chinese-made phone, uh, specifically one made by Xiaomi or Huawei, both very big Chinese smartphone brands. If you own one of these phones, throw it away as soon as you can. And if you're thinking about buying a new mobile phone anytime soon, avoid these brands like the plague. 
That sounds like pretty extreme advice. Yeah. Um, is there any like specific reason why they were looking at these phones in particular? So the 5G versions of these phones have been available in Lithuania since last year. And these brands have generally, you know, they've been popular for quite a while now because, you know, they're good smartphones. Uh, they work well, they've got good cameras, and they're quite affordable alternatives to something like an iPhone because they only cost about 300 bucks. So lots of Lithuanians have them. The other thing that I guess played into it is that there's been all these head headlines about whether China could use 5G technology to spy on the West as this faster internet gets rolled out across this continent and beyond. Uh, but in any case, the Lithuanian cybersecurity agency were like, since a lot of people are buying these phones, mm, we should probably take a look at them. So they were mostly looking at the flagship phones made by Xiaomi and Huawei, but they also ran some tests on the OnePlus, which is this other Chinese smartphone I have a brand. Oh, okay. Are they listening? That's the question. <laughs> it's on airplane mode. This should be fine. You will be relieved to hear that the Lithuanian cyber people didn't actually find much on the OnePlus. But uh, yeah, just in case you're listening out there in Beijing via Dominic's pocket, uh, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. Um, so what was actually wrong with the phones? Yeah, some quite scary things. Uh, so with the Huawei one, one of the main problems was that if you are trying to download an app and it's not available via the official app store, the Huawei phone can send you to an alternative app store, which is a lot more shady. And once you're there, instead of downloading the app that you wanted, uh, it might download an imitation version, which does do what the original version does, uh, but it will also infect your phone with malware. And that malware might, for example, steal all of your data. And are they accusing the Chinese government of being behind this? Or could it be like general hackers? Yeah, cyber criminals. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that right now. It sounds pretty freaky in any case. Um, and what about the other phone? You talked about Huawei, but Xiaomi? Xiaomi, yeah. So the big problem with that one is it has some pretty neat built-in censorship software. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we should be that surprised about that. These phones are made primarily for the Chinese domestic market. Uh, but what the Lithuanian cyber people found out when they looked at these phones is that there are lines of code built into the phone that can automatically block content relating to several hundred banned organizations in China. And there's quite a big range of groups on this list. Uh, it includes Al-Qaeda on one side, but also Voice of America, the US broadcaster. Uh, but a lot of the groups in this list relate directly to Chinese politics. So for example, if you try to search for something like Free Tibet or Long Live Taiwan Independence, it can block that. And does that mean European users with these phones will have their searches blocked if they if they search free Tibet? Uh, no. So this software is disactivated on the Xiaomi phones that are sold within Europe. But the Lithuanian cyber people warned in their report that in theory, this software could be turned on remotely by Xiaomi if they wanted to. And that is kind of uncomfortable because, you know, on this continent, we tend to be quite big fans of people being able to access stuff on the internet whatever they want, you know? Uh, the other thing that was quite disturbing with the Xiaomi phones was that at some point, users might get asked, do you want to register this phone with something called the Xiaomi User Experience Marketing Program? And it turns out that if you do that, they can just casually read your search history. Oh, I never sign on to those things, so I now feel vindicated. <laughs> well done, Dominic. Uh, I mean, look, let's get this straight. Having a phone made by a different manufacturer that does not guarantee in any way that it is safe from state surveillance. Uh, the Pegasus scandal that broke over the summer, that made that crystal clear. And just a couple of weeks ago, Apple had to issue an urgent fix for iPhones uh, because they realized that 
Pegasus could be installed on people's phones without them doing so much as clicking on a dodgy message, this super, super invasive spying software. So it's not just Chinese phones that can turn themselves into spying devices. But it does seem like Lithuania is taking things to another level by saying, do not buy these phones. And if you have already got one, get rid of it as quickly as possible. Throw it in the river. So it's Lithuania that are giving this advice, but presumably it affects everyone in every country that has a phone like this. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's anything particularly special about the Chinese phones <laughs> that are sold in Lithuania. Um, and yeah, I don't know if there's any Huawei's or Xiaomi's out there in the audience tonight, uh, but these brands do make up about a quarter of the phones sold in Europe. And yeah, in theory, they would have exactly the same issues with them, regardless of whether you happen to buy them in Lithuania or not. And it's not a coincidence that it's Lithuania that have done this research, is it? They've had like quite a rocky time with China lately. Good European nerd knowledge, Dominic. Well done. Um, there is a lot of beef between Lithuania and China. You're absolutely correct. And that might seem kind of random because one of them is a country of 1.4 billion people and the other one has less than 3 million people. So it is quite a, you know, a David and Goliath kind of situation. Uh, but Lithuania has recently been emerging as the most vocally anti-China country in Europe, I would say. Uh, one thing that they've done in particular to piss China off is to let Taiwan open a diplomatic office in Lithuania. And it's not so much the existence of the office itself, uh, but the fact that, that this office is going to be called the Taiwanese Representative Office in Lithuania. Uh, so Taiwan, just a quick reminder, it is an island off the southern coast of China. It is a democratic government and most of the West treats it as a country in its own right. Uh, but China claims that Taiwan is part of China. And it is hugely, hugely sensitive about any suggestion that Taiwan is indeed a separate country. So when Lithuania said in July, oh, we're just going to let Taiwan open an office and it's going to say Taiwan on the sign, uh, this was actually breaking quite a big diplomatic taboo. Uh, because even though there are Taiwanese embassies, embassies in inverted commas, all over Europe and the rest of the West, they generally don't have the words Taiwan in the title because it makes China really mad. Uh, so yeah, Beijing went really nuts over this new Lithuanian office in the summer. Uh, they've brought their ambassador home and um, they've even brought in some trade restrictions. But this wasn't even the first time that Lithuania has gone up against China in public. Uh, they pulled out of this club called the 17 plus one earlier this year. It's this club of countries in Central and Eastern Europe, which China is mm, kind of friendly with. Some of them get quite a lot of investment from China in infrastructure projects and stuff like that. They've been getting vaccines and masks from China. So yeah, you can really see Beijing trying to build up its influence in the Eastern bit of Europe. It's, it's quite unnerving. What is it that makes Lithuania skeptical of China in particular? Because the neighboring countries don't seem so skeptical. Yeah, there's a couple of different theories. I mean, maybe there's some kind of innate solidarity, I don't know, with Taiwan, because Lithuania is also this tiny little country living in the shadow of a massive, powerful and scary country, aka Russia. Uh, there's also some suggestion that being really anti-China wins them points with the United States. And, you know, as we all know, it can be useful to be friends with the United States. Well, it's useful to be friends with countries that have lots of big, powerful guns, apparently. Yes, it is nice to be friends with countries with big, powerful guns. Play the jingle. So when Katie convinced me to do this podcast three and a half years ago, um, I don't think either of us had any idea that we would end up here doing a live performance in a room full of actual real living people. Um, it's been a crazy journey, but I think it's fair to say that we wouldn't be here still today if it wasn't for the people who support us through Patreon. So we want to do an extra special 
thank you to all the people, especially the people in the room today who have been supporting us on Patreon and making this podcast continue. You can join them by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Um, the latest people to do this are Lauren Uranga and Alison Graham, who get a special live shout out in front of this room full of people. So a round of applause for Lauren and Alison. We are super grateful for donations, big and small, and every little helps. But within the elite ranks of our Patreon supporters, uh, there are a few different levels, social classes, I guess you could say. And de- Awkward. <laughs> and... De- and depending on how much you're able to pledge every month, uh, you get different stuff. So if you're able to pledge two euros, dollars or pounds a month, you get access to our secret Facebook group, which is honestly one of the nicest places on that godforsaken website these days. Uh, it's just full of Europeans and Europhiles, like sharing interesting news articles and starting conversations with each other. It's really lovely. Uh, so that's one thing. If you're able to pledge five bucks a month, you get a personalized voice message from Dominic and me. Which people seem to like. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the podcast is talking to them. So some people find it creepy. But yes, you're right. Some people like it. Uh, If you are able to pledge 10 bucks a month, you get all of the above, plus a postcard from us written from Paris or Amsterdam. And in the truly elite tier for 20 euros a month, you get an exclusive fair trade cotton tote bag with our original vintage artwork on it designed by me on Microsoft Paint. And as a special thanks to those of you who've come to us this evening for all your love and support over the years, Katie's boyfriend is coming around with a bag for all of you. It's an Oprah moment. You get a bag. You get a bag. You get a bag. (laughs) Bags for everyone. Sorry, it's not a car. Uh, so yeah, enjoy your angry Macron bags, everyone. Wear them around town while you're doing your shopping and enjoy all of the awkward questions about why you're carrying a bag that has the screaming face of Emmanuel Macron on it. Jingle, please, cats. So right now, Dominic and I and this lovely audience are sitting in the Tollhouse Town, a wonderful cultural centre that sits right on the River Eye. And sorry to be a bit of a downer this evening, but it's disturbing to think about the fact that one day this place is going to be underwater along with large parts of this country. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. And our guest tonight suggests that Amsterdam will be underwater about 250 years from now. That is a scary prospect, but it also raises a question that doesn't necessarily need to be depressing. If Amsterdam has 250 years left, what is the best way of using these 250 years? What should the final quarter century of this city look like? That was the question on the minds of Collective Walden. They are a documentary theatre collective based right here in Amsterdam, in this very building, in fact. Uh, Although I think that calling them a theatre group, it doesn't really exactly capture what they do because a lot of their work is big and outside and set within nature because it deals with nature and our relationship with the environment. And this project was no exception. This summer, Collective Walden built an island, a floating island in the River Eye, made with these big, beautiful, colourful bars and they stage talk shows with experts, everyone from engineers to psychologists, casting their imaginations 250 years into the future. And they invited people, one by one, to visit this island, to enjoy this very cool, immersive audio experience, and to reflect on the same question. What do you want the final quarter century of this incredible city to look like? Please welcome Thomas Lammers from Collective Walden. (laughs) 
Thank you. Nice to have you here, Thomas. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> sure, it's very nice to be Thomas here. Thomas actually reminded me earlier that we did interview him once before, but it was in one of our trial episodes. Yes. Yes, it was actually never aired, I think. There were episodes of this podcast that never aired. Mm. They never saw the light of day, which is for the best. I think it was just after the Brexit vote when you were actually practicing and seeing whether this was going to be something for you. So you, I think you made about 10 episodes, didn't you? Yeah. Too many. Maybe you should have a new tier in your Patreon group and disseminate them <laughs> amongst them. I think no, nobody should ever hear <laughs> those episodes. That should be like 5,000 euros a month kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Thomas Lammers, I imagine as someone who has grown up in this country, there wasn't like one moment in your life where you thought, oh shit, like this place is going to be underwater one day. Is this just an idea that you grew up with? Well, it is and it isn't, because we also have this notion that we're, us, the Dutch, were able to withstand any kind of water threat. So we, we feel like we will be able to manage it. Yeah, that's the, that's the overall feeling, I think. That, that was here for the last 30 years. Maybe it's waning a bit. It might be waning. And so you chose to build this island in the shape of the Feluwe, which is part of the country that's at slightly higher than where we are now. What was the significance in choosing that region in particular? Um, the Veluwe is, um, we can't really call it a hill, but it's the more hilly, more um, uh, bo- high, higher area in the Netherlands. This country um, doesn't have hills, so does it's, it? it's hard to cycle. Some of the bits are really hard to cycle. Oh. Um, and uh, so obviously when the water level rises, um, the Veluwe will actually be surrounded by water. So if you head east from Amsterdam, you'll first see the new island uh, uh, archipelago, the Utrechtse Heuvelrug. And then you will come to the Veluwe. And it, yeah, it's now a very thinly populated area. But if Holland, so the, the cities in North and South Holland, uh, will become uninhabitable, that might become a region that will be uh, uh, very, very densely populated. Yeah. Something that I found kind of unnerving about this project in general is that it looked like a very nice experience. It looked very kind of gentle and beautiful. And you got to take a swim and sit in a sauna if you wanted to. And it's unsettling because while in this lovely environment, you're asking people to confront a really anxiety-provoking question about the mortality of this city. Um, why did you guys at Collective Walden decide to make this such a, a nice experience, for want of a better word? Well, I think people are a bit more susceptible to information when they are at ease. I think that's the that's the reason why we did that. If you shout into people's faces, oh my God, the city's going to disappear and our, our grandchildren, grandchildren's grandchildren might die, um, that often gives a kind of knee-jerk response uh, to, to not want to hear it or something. So we actually played a lot with um, the beachy feeling. Islands are, you know, paradise is often symbolized by an island. So we wanted to really play with that. Uh, actually, in the research period, we looked at this island in um, Pinocchio, where the naughty boys are sent to. Um, and first, it really seems like uh, a paradise. Like, you can play around, you can draw mustaches on the, um, the Mona Lisa, and you can smash windows, and you can do everything. You can, you can try beer. Um, and then they lock the island, and then suddenly everybody uh, turns into a donkey, slowly. Um, I think except for the hero Pinocchio, because he wasn't a real boy. Don't tell anyone. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah, and I remember finding that so scary as a child. And so we came across uh, some, um, I can't remember the name, but it's a, it's, a, it's a little 
atlas of imaginary islands, and it opens with this motto that says, paradise is an island, or heaven is an island, but so is hell. So we wanted to play with that. We wanted to play with the feeling of coming to this leisurely place uh, where you could, yeah, yeah, I really confronted with something. I really felt that contrast when I visited the island myself. Um, as you stepped onto the ferry on your own, one by one, the ferry man or woman said to you, do you have family on higher land? And it was kind of an innocent question, but quite confronting, actually, because that is going to become a question that people will have to start asking themselves at some point. And I, yeah, I wonder, is that something, were you deliberately trying to... Uh, you were trying to make a nice experience, but were you also trying to kind of scare people and make them realize what is coming? Um, scare people, not necessarily, but, but make them realize what's coming. Yes, definitely. And I think to make it quite practical and to make it very uh, sensory, to, to really understand what the implications of this are going to be, uh, is, is a really good tool. Growing up in the Netherlands, I've always been aware that Eindhoven, where I'm from, is 23 meters above sea level. We would always feel, ah, so we are kind of safe. If something happens, the floods won't be, won't be around here. Although, as we were doing the projects, there were massive floods in the, in the higher regions of the Netherlands. The only region that actually has hills was heavily flooded, which was quite bizarre and gave an extra kind of importance to what we were doing. This, this project that sounded like something from a distant future, but suddenly felt much more acute because of these floods that were affecting Belgium and Germany and, and the south of the Netherlands. And so the whole basis of this project is this idea that Amsterdam will probably be around for about another 250 years. How did you guys settle on this number? So if you'd ask me how long do you think Amsterdam will be around, I think it's going to be less than 250 years. Ah. So I think at a maximum 250 years. Um, but we settled on, on it because Amsterdam was first mentioned in historical documents in 1275. Actually, this is called the Tollhouse Town, and it means the, the Tollhouse Garden. And right here is the Tollhouse, the old place where they actually asked people who wanted to um, sail across the canal for, um, for toll. And the privilege to ask for toll, is that the English word as well? Yeah, toll. toll. Yeah. Mm -hmm was granted in 1275 by probably Count Floris V or something. Um, and he... Uh, <laughs> Confidently said. <laughs> Might need fact-checking. <laughs> and he, so uh, uh, the, the, the first records of Amsterdam started then in 1275. There, there had been little settlements around here. But um, we thought our 750th anniversary is coming up. That's going to be 2025. And so we, we thought we'd add another 250 years to that, and then we will have the, the, the duration of a city. And yeah, a thousand years we thought was a nice number. And if you look at the science, it's probably, we might, we might get, get there, but probably we won't. And you, you spoke to various experts each night um, in these talk shows, like psychologists, uh, architects, and dam builders. Did any of them think that Amsterdam would survive beyond 250 years? So in our, in our nightly talk show, we talked to, I think, 23 guests, and there was one who thought that um, we would survive, we would easily survive beyond that. And he was actually a dike engineer from Delft, which I thought was very um, comforting. But then we also talked to some other people who said, yeah, actually, dikes are great, and we can do a lot with dikes, but if you, 
if you tip the map of Europe, if you tilt it a little bit, so the Alps are to the top of your map and at the bottom is the Netherlands, you see we're a delta. We are just where all the water from France and from, from Switzerland and from Germany drains into. So the mouths of the river are wide open here. So you can have a dike, but then the seawater just comes in through the river. And you don't want to close that because then the fresh water will flood the delta. So there wasn't really a plan there. He thought he just had this optimism of, yeah, of course, technical innov innovation will get us there. And then when what we asked... What technical innovation was he Yeah, that, that's the thing. When we asked for details, he said, ah, we'll work them out when, uh, when, when it's necessary. <laughs> it was very, very strange that the most optimistic people were also the most vague, actually. He, he had plans about, he said, maybe we can have the water run over Amsterdam and create a kind of underwater... Um, a city, a, a kind of a bubble, and I thought, okay, great. Yeah, this sounds like that something sounds Boris <laughs> Johnson would come up with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, I th he's great. He's probably a very good engineer when you give him the right task. But in this, in this, in this big, <laughs> big perspective, uh, I, I wouldn't put my, uh, I wouldn't put my coins in his basket. <laughs> and so, looking beyond the mere survival of the city, did this project make you form your own opinions about what you want Amsterdam to look like more broadly for the next? 250 years in terms of its politics and like the society of the place yeah of course yeah definitely we we were thinking about um so what would we want amsterdam to be um and obviously we want it to be sustainable but it doesn't have to be forever because it's only 250 years so we want it to be sustainable on its own um uh, for this last period of time this final quarter and we would like it not to contribute to the demise of other places in the world that would be great and we want it to be solidary amongst the the internal community of Amsterdam and with other communities mostly on the water side but also worldwide so actually the hidden agenda was there was a kind of hidden agenda to be a little bit left and a little bit green maybe um Busted. in no particular order <laughs> uh, but also we thought Amsterdam wouldn't be Amsterdam if it wouldn't also be a little bit fabulous we can really shape these final 250 years and that was that was the real hidden hidden agenda that we wanted people to not be so terrified about an ending we wanted them to be aware of it and then live accordingly and this might seem a little bit off topic but i was reminded of another thing from my childhood and it was i don't know how old i was i must have been six or seven or eight maybe when I saw on your favorite um, news outlet, your favorite Dutch news outlet, Jeugdjournaal. Um, it's true, it's my level of Dutch, the, the children's news service. <laughs> but I was watching it as the, as the target audience. Um, and I, um, it's quite a I, uh, I heard about the death of my favorite, uh, my favorite author, Annie M.K. Smith, who had celebrated her 84th birthday. And after that, after all her friends had gone home, she ended her life and it was it, it felt like it wasn't so sad she had lived a long and fulfilling life and maybe it was because it was Jochenal but I remember thinking oh the end doesn't have to necessarily be a tragedy it can also just be chosen and I think maybe Amsterdam could lead by example um, euthanasia was I think first legalized in the Netherlands and why can't we also have this fixed term idea for a community or a city why should it have to be a tragedy if something ends we wouldn't be dutch if you wouldn't be planning for an ending 
um, we could do this in an orderly way. Uh, and I think <laughs> planning for an ending will make life more enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's the that's maybe the the could have been the tagline for the show. Planning for an ending can make your stay more enjoyable. But in practical terms, we just bought a house in this city, Thomas. Mm. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Yeah. So one during the during the we were trying to to program this this talk show and we tried really hard to get a real estate person to come. There was an investor, a big investor here in Amsterdam North, who was supporting the festival with, with a, quite a serious donation. And they would come to our talk show because we were co-producing it with Over at Eye Festival. And then when they realized what our angle was going to be, they actually withdrew. And they also withdrew their donation from the festival. And I want to say wow. props to Over at Eye Festival to stay with us, to stay on our side and say, no, we are going to do this. You, they, these guys have artistic autonomy and they can say this because, you know, facts are facts. And then I tried to get a real estate agent and I found someone who said, you're right. And I actually vote for Partij voor de Dier, for Animal Party uh, here in the Netherlands. So I, I, I completely agree. I think 250 years is stretching it, actually. But... I cannot come. I literally cannot come because I am part of the NVM, the Dutch Association of, uh, of Real Estate Agents. And we have a code and we cannot say anything in public that might damage the investors' climate of the Netherlands, of, of Amsterdam. So developers and agents, they know that this is the case, but um, they just don't want us all to know because it might uh, end up in a panic. And I might just have ruined our, the value of our house, Dominic, that we just bought. <laughs> um, oh, well. But maybe, right. you know, I hope that maybe scarcity will make it more desirable to live here, maybe, just for the final, final bit of the ride, you know? Fabulous, but underwater. Um, <laughs> yeah. Looking into the sort of nearer future, Thomas, not quite 250 years ahead, before you go, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Collective Walden has coming up? We actually don't have to venture too far into the future. It could actually, for the people in the in the audience, it could be a matter of half an hour, maybe an hour, uh, where you can see a Collective Walden work. Um, it's actually, if you exit the building through the ground floor on the I side, there is an installation uh, that we did, Radix, and it's about invasive exotic species and how to not handle them. Um, drawing a comparison on, on how, we, how we deal with strangeness or, or alienness in, in society in a broader sense. We also did a podcast uh, for that in Dutch. So for the Dutch-speaking audience, um, maybe I'll just plug that. It was for NTR Docs and it was called Er woekert een probleem in onze bodem. And also we made our own episodes. Uh, and if you look for Radix, you'll, you'll find it. Then next month will actually be 50 meters to the north here in the garden itself, the Tolhuistuin where we will do uh, Warmte, which is a um, philosophical dinner show uh, where you can, Ooh. yeah, we have a, you sit on heated radiator benches and there's a fire and- How you, hot are these yeah. benches? Um, they can get quite hot, but we also provide blankets. So you can sit on blankets if they, if they get too hot. Health um, and safety, Thomas. But it's, it's, it's October, you know, yeah, there, there is health, there is safety. Um, Good. And it's, uh, there's a vegan meal, so you'll be, you'll be fine. Um, D Dominic survived it last year. I did. I do also want to mention that the reason why Amsterdam is probably is disappearing has a lot to do with this place, because the Tohestein was the private park of the Shell, uh, of, of Royal Dutch Shell, and they had their employees just, um, they could take coffee breaks in this, in this little park here. Uh, you blaming us. Shell for the whole flooding of the Netherlands? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's 
Dominic, facts are facts. There is global warming and CO2 emissions have something to do with that. And Shell had a little, sure. bit, a little bit of a share in that. So, yes. Please don't sue a Shell. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. No, it was, was all... Uh, no, I shouldn't say that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the Inflation thank you, European Thomas, Podcast. Thank you, Thomas, for joining us. <laughs> Thomas Lammers, everyone. That was great. Thomas didn't seem at all like someone who was like forced to come up on stage at gunpoint and talk to us because he's married to you. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, um, Thomas. We'll buy you dinner tomorrow. And that music you just heard was by the wonderful Amsterdam-based musician Ed Bahoni. Thank you, Ed. What's next? Isolation inspiration. Jingle, please. As this is a very unusual show in many ways, we thought we would shake up Isolation Inspiration a little bit this week and hear from you guys because you're probably sick of our voices by now. You hear us literally every week. So yeah, we're crowdsourcing Isolation Inspiration. Yeah, you see, I can't speak anymore, so it's best that you come up. Um, from you lovely people in the audience, does anyone have a good European book, film, podcast, video game that they'd like to come up and share with our audience? Mick is like walking towards the stage. Yeah, come on. Mick Terehorst, everyone. Well, I won't probably be the only one, but I've really enjoyed the recent Sally Rooney book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? I'm, I've been, like, I've loved the other ones as well, Conversation with Friends and Normal People, but this one really hit home again because it's, like it's it's about like I don't know conversation with friends with like six years ago or something, and I really felt that at that time because it's really about my age like I don't know, when I was twenty five twenty six and now it really comes to the thirty somethings or close to thirties and I'm like I don't know it's just such a beautiful understated story and I don't know it it always hits home Sally Rooney so it's definitely inspiration. Uh, some people have been saying like third book. And well, the second album complex, but it's like yeah, it's, it's not, not working. The best, no, it's not. It's not. It's not as as hard hitting as the other ones, but it does sort of grow over reading it. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely gonna read it because I was obsessed with the first two. I'm gonna read it too, even though isn't it a book about a successful author? And I kind of feel like she's getting paid to like imagine things. Shouldn't, shouldn't she imagine something a bit more different than her actual life? That's a fair point. <laughs> Maybe. Are there any other recommendations? Cats Laszlo, you must have one. As you might have noticed, we have prepared <laughs> victims with any audience. victims. In case no one <laughs> wanted to come up. What a surprise. Um, what I was looking at, I actually haven't watched it, full disclosure, but I tried to read that book, The Hidden Life of Trees, and I'm really quite nerdy about plants, so you would think I would like it, but the English translation was so boring. Oh, I've got the audiobook. It's nice. Yeah, and now there is a film, which is what I'm trying to recommend, and Ooh. I think it's, it's going to be really good. I watched the trailer, and I'm going on Sunday, so it's in the cinemas, and I think that it's going to be really good. That's great. great. I was in a bookshop the other day, and they had the hidden life of or secret life of almost everything yeah. like it's Bees. such a trend yeah that time when you guys did the interview about eels and then i'd read like a separate book also about eels that came there out are literally the same two time. books I called know. the secret lives of eels <laughs> it's outrageous on the market. <laughs> yeah go read them too 
special. <laughs> I should have known. You'd think you know that jingle by now. Yeah, you would have thought. It's been nearly four years. It doesn't usually get played when we're recording. Katie adds them later. Secret. Sometimes we sing um, A special treat for the live show. I've got an actual happy ending. Finally. Uh, today, I want to tell you the story of a man who is living his best life. The 31-year-old Italian pastry chef, Nicholas Gentile. He lives in the countryside near the town of Chieti in Abruzzo. But for Nicholas, it's not Abruzzo. It's the Shire. Nicholas is living his life as a hobbit. And he posts it. about it to his over 120,000 followers on Instagram under his profile, My Hobbit Life. Gentile told The Guardian in an interview that some time ago he realized that watching the films and reading the books just wasn't enough anymore. He needed to start living the life. So he went about building his very own corner of Middle Earth in the Italian countryside. And he's taken it pretty seriously. He's bought five acres of land ah! to do this. Um, is he actually like acting out scenes from the books? Uh, yeah, sometimes. He, with a few of his Lord of the Rings fans, friends, they uh, went on a 290 kilometer walk in August to reach Mount Vesuvius, into which he threw the One Ring. Oh, so is Vesuvius in this, that's like Mordor. I think so. I actually don't really know anything about Lord of the Rings. It's more to the place where the ring goes. Um, but anyway, his efforts to live out his life as a hobbit have gained him quite a lot of attention lately. I mean, a Guardian interview. And he recently even caught the attention of many of the cast members of the films of The Lord of the Rings, including Elijah Woods, Elijah Wood, who played Bilbo Baggins, Billy Boyd, who played Pippin, and Sean Astin, who played Samwise Gamgee. Elijah left Gentile a really lovely message congratulating him on his efforts and complimenting his costumes. So to close out this unusually happy, happy ending, I'll share Gentile's own words with you um, after he saw the messages from these cast members. He said, seeing their humanity, their emotion for my project filled me with pride and joy. I understood they are very humble, simple people. Bit rude. <laughs> Simple people. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Yeah, anyway, continue with the quote. No, it's not finished. <laughs> In short, come to think of it, Wood, Boyd and Astin are real hobbits. Now you can play the jingle. So we did it, Dominic. We got through an entire live show and we live to tell the tale, more or less. Uh, yeah, it feels like we've been on our very own Tolkien-esque journey. For those of you who weren't able to join us, we will post some pictures from the show on our various social media channels, Twitter at Europeans Pod, Instagram at Europeans Podcast, and we're on Facebook under The Europeans Podcast. Yeah, thank you everyone so much for being here this evening and thank you to Leifen and the team at the Dutch Podcast Festival. We were so happy to be invited well that's kind of half true we were really scared but now i'm pleased this podcast is part of the are we europe family some of whom are in the room tonight mick and stefano eddie and evo thank you so much for helping to make this happen and uh, to the other members of our team Wojciech, Alexiak, and warsaw and in the room tonight our very own senior producer kat Salazlo. now you can play another jingle thank you everyone no we don't bow don't all